Hello and welcome to another glitched up version of Save Station Radio. I am your host Dustin and with me is Cotter. Hello there. And this week we will be talking about the retro inspired indie game Axiom Verge. Developed, created, published by Thomas Hap Games, which I believe is what, that's him and some contributors, right? Uh, it is Thomas Hap and a dude that helped uh, market and publish. Yeah, that's wild. That's it's always that's wild about to it. me. Always a cool <laughs> accomplishment. Released on a whole slew of platforms at different times. So you ready for this? I'm ready. PS4, March 31st, 2015. PC, May 14th, 2015. PS Vita, may it rest in peace. April 19th, 2016. Wii U, September 1st, 2016. Xbox One, September 30th, 2016. And finally, the Switch on October 5th, 2017. Whew. That's yeah, it's a lot. A, it's a gotten around. This is um, just for official digital re-releases. There are a slew of other physical releases, like there was a limited runs printing for certain things there's the multiverse edition which i is the version i owned on switch um that one comes with like a documentary and the soundtrack and a map and poster and all that um so yeah it's been around it's got a lot of re-releases i think it's getting another one from limited games like pretty soon if you're listening to this when this episode comes out yeah it's it's been released quite a few times certainly accessible um, why don't you take it away and tell us about the development of Axiom Verge? Yeah, um, I just have a little bit of stuff here. Um, the Like I said, the Multiverse Edition comes with a making-of documentary uh, on a Blu-ray disc. That's how I watched it. The It's not super long, and I'll link a, a link to an, a YouTube upload if you're curious about watching that. Uh, that goes into a lot more detail about... A sort of Thomas Hap's personal life, um, what he was dealing with at home during development and sort of his process. Uh, definitely worth a watch. But here's the the gist, sort of. So it's just Thomas Hap is the sole developer of this game. Uh, he was previously working at EA. Uh, he worked on a handful of sports titles, like a Tiger Woods game and some other stuff that was uh, eventually canceled. And then I believe for a college project... He made a Metroid fan game for the Game Boy Advance uh, that he titled Orn, um, which I will uh, hopefully leave a link to, a place where you can download it. And it is a full recreation of Metroid 1's Brinstar level for the Game Boy Advance, which I know you're probably thinking, they did that, they made Metroid Zero Mission. Uh Yes, but this is an entirely like ground up remake that is a lot more faithful to the original game's level design using completely like original assets and original programming and all that. It's really honestly impressive. It's just the first area, but there's a couple changes to some of the items and then some of the level design as well. But uh, yeah, it's a really cool thing to check out. Um, I did play through all of it because it's not super long but it's a uh, really impressive uses a lot of like uh pre-rendered 3d graphics uh which i think look pretty nice for the uh, game boy advances hardware um you know we saw, saw this with certain things like donkey kong country and whatnot but um it works out pretty good nice um shortly after that uh, after he left ea in march of 2010 he began working on axiom verge as just a side project. Uh, I think in the documentary he talked about how he just worked at his own pace. He knew what he wanted to get done. So he just kind of blocked it out and then uh, worked on it as he went. And tried not to get too overwhelmed by this project. But yeah, so an alpha version of this game was uploaded to the 2012 Dream Build Plague Challenge. Uh, which is a game creation challenge that's put on by Microsoft uh, to promote indie games for Windows and Xbox 360 Live Arcade. Uh, 2012 was the last year that it occurred until it was rebooted in 2017, I believe. Um, but an alpha version was uploaded to that, which got people excited for this uh, project. And then it appeared also on Indie Static's Top 100 Most Anticipated Indie Games of 2014, as well as getting a bunch of other 
like uh, interest shown on different forums and whatnot. So there's a lot of pressure on uh, Thomas to get the game out by the end of 2014 while the hype was still there. But that was more pressure than was fitting into his work schedule or his uh, work pace. So he just continued with his existing pace and eventually released it in uh, March 31st, 2015. And it received a lot of really positive reviews at the t- at the time of its release yeah it was definitely got a positive reaction i remember hearing about it back then and a lot of the reviews at that time and still to this day honestly are how shocked people are that it's made by one person um i remember also in that documentary mentions how people were like uh people were saying oh yeah but not the music right that had to be someone else it's like no no he did the music <laughs> the graphics the programming the design the story everything um it was just him it's very cool We should probably tell people what this is if they don't know it is a 2d metroidvania very much as you would have gathered styled after metroid and yeah i mean that's what it is it wears its influence on its sleeve i don't really have any history with this game this is my first time playing it i heard about it back when it first released but that's about it yeah other than that this was my first playthrough but you did play it uh, yes i played it not when it released i heard about it a little bit later probably about 2015 i want to say or like late 2015 maybe 2016 but i played it on pc i played it with a steam controller which i would not recommend (laughs) but yeah i really enjoyed it you know i'm uh if you know me i'm a huge metroid fan i've grew up with the um, game boy advance metroid games and metroid prime and all that so this was kind of hitting all those notes for me, but it does a lot of things different to Metroid. You know, when you call it a Metroidvania, yes, it is very much Metroid, and it's very much inspired by not just the Metroid franchise, but Metroid 1 specifically, <laughs> uh, which, you know, could be a turnoff for people because that game's pretty archaic by today's standards, but sort of the, like, almost cryptic nature of it and, like, the large world that you can explore at any given point is certainly an aspect of that game that is improved upon here so yeah when i played it back for the first time i really enjoyed it uh i did not go for 100 percent completion or anything i just you know finished it and enjoyed it uh, and then i picked up the multiverse edition on switch and played it again there and then uh this was the third time when i played it for this podcast uh so yeah i've, I've played it a couple times Nice. Um, do you want to give us a quick story synopsis? Uh, yes, just the just the sort of intro setup. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the game starts in two thousand five. There's a science, a physics scientist by the name of Trace. He's working in a lab. Uh, there's a frozen pressure valve that causes an explosion and Trace loses consciousness. Uh, he wakes up in an egg-shaped pod in a strange world uh, that he's not familiar with and is greeted by a voice that is known as Elsa Nova. Uh, he obtains a gun and then he finds Elsa Nova who says, some, uh, gives some backstory to the world. Elsa Nova, by the way, is a giant machine that has a human-like face on it. It's got a big old face. If you just big run into it, you just like walk and you're like, oh, that's a big old woman's face. It's a big old face. Uh, but it, she explains that uh, the people of this world were uh, sort of taken over by a man not, named Athetos. Uh, he unleashed a pathogen on the world, killing and corrupting most of the living creatures. Um, Trace also kills a couple bosses that reference this. Uh, so Elsinova urges Trace to help them repair the other Rasalki, which are the big face robots, and then ultimately put a stop to Athetos' plans. And that's uh, the basic gist. Nice. <laughs> it okay, gets you... uh, really weird after that, <laughs> like, so much so that it can be a little hard to follow, and it's one that, like, 
you know, if you're going to dive into like the actual story, you want to sit down and read a bunch of stuff and then think about it for a while. But the basic gist, you know, like those classic games, the basic gist will get you through to the end of the game if you don't super care about all the rest of the lore. Right. You, you, you told us some of your opinion of this game. Do you have anything else to add in terms of this playthrough? Um, yeah, I will say this, this game, um, there's a certain, I've been thinking a lot about Metroidvanias as a whole because I have played a large number of them and some I like and some I don't. And it's kind of tricky to pinpoint because they're all like minor changes that can make me either not like it or really like it. (laughs) But this game does something that a lot of really good Metroidvanias do. And it's something that is most notably seen in Super Metroid, and that is giving you a large world to explore, but locking off certain parts for, like, until you get an item, you can unlock this part of the world and whatnot. That's standard Metroidvania. What Super Metroid did specifically was it would give you some upgrades, you would go into an area, and then you'd get trapped in that area for a little bit until you get certain other upgrades, and then you can leave the area. So what it does is you get upgrades in that area, but you're not overwhelmed by the large world of like, oh, I could go anywhere with this. You're still limited to the small area, and then you have to find more upgrades in there. And then later in the game, you'll have access to the whole thing once you're fully powered up. Uh, This game does that in specific moments, and I think it really kind of drives the sort of first half of this game forward which I find really uh, helpful. It's also helpful that they give you a large way of dealing with enemies, which I feel like can make or break a Metroidvania for me. But yeah, I think um, while that really, really works for me, there are some parts that don't where like later in the game, once you have a bunch of upgrades, things get really confusing and like there's a lot of places you can go and it can be a little unclear. But uh, overall, I think you know, being so inspired by Metroid that it's very obvious kind of uh, puts him at a disadvantage for being compared to Metroid. But I think he I really lands it with this game. Like, I think it kind of lives up to that. Nice. Um, I am I am a little less positive than you. I really, really enjoyed my first, like, half of gameplay. I found when I was discovering new areas consistently... And kind of running through on what is, you know, admittedly more the linear sections of the video game. I was really into it. I felt like it put you on a good path. I never was too lost during that first bit. But as the game goes on and as it becomes more of a Metroidvania and therefore expects you to backtrack more, the more frustrated it became for me so much so that I felt like during the second half of my playthrough I just wasn't having fun. It, it very much felt like I just dropped off a cliff with this game. And I eventually had to give up and use a guide which felt like defeat <laughs> like i just i don't know like, like this is a weird one I, I don't think i felt this way where i was so happy and so positive on it for the first couple hours and then i i just i it was for me the thing that killed it was this game does not really once you open up the map and and are expected to backtrack a bunch it doesn't give you any hints about where to go specifically and i have the kind of player who needs that I can't just have a big open area and be told, I'll figure it out. <laughs> I need at least something, and this game doesn't give you anything. And that really hampered my experience. Um, as much as there are elements I really did enjoy, it's just like the overall construction really put it... It just it was, it was pretty rough <laughs> for me. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was saying with where it will like lock you in an area and then you're forced to go you're you're not allowed to backtrack with your new items for a little bit because that sort of drives you to keep discovering and going forward it's once you hit that point where you've discovered most of the map and you have most of your abilities but there's still some stuff to find that is kind of spread out and not super clear that's when it can get a little annoying and i definitely feel that you know i i love this game and i've played it three times but I do always hit that point where I'm like, okay, now where do I go? And okay, now I should probably look up a guide. <laughs> and the ma- you know, it like there's just several things that like I wish this game had. For example, I like any sort of hint system. Um, I think about I played Metroid Zero Mission a couple of months ago, and that game would you go to a statue, a, a Chozo statue, 
they you know they show you where to go on the map um it doesn't reveal the map for you it just gives you a waypoint and tells you okay did i figure out how to go like something like that would have helped even if it was like hey your next objective is north you know even if it just gave me a direct a direction i feel like that would have helped anything at all for me and you know i admit some of this is personal preference i am not the kind of player who you can drop into especially a 2d world and and i you know it give me no direction and I, I i you know i just kind of flounder at that point like i'm like i don't know where to go i have trouble keeping 2d metroidvania maps in my head you know like it's not like a, like a 3d environment i feel like i'm pretty good about remembering stuff an environment like this i can't at all so like the map tells you it it'll tell you which rooms you can progress further in but that's it it doesn't tell you how so it doesn't give you any icons so I could run to an area, I could be like, okay, well, there's a square that's open over here, so I guess I'll go check over there, and then I go over there, and I'm like, oh, right, this room is one I can't get past because I still don't have this ability, this is not where I'm supposed to go. And what that created was the cycle of me running around the entire map, and I feel like I did that like six times. And like I said, it just created this, this frustration for me, <laughs> where I was pretty done with it by the end. Yeah, I definitely feel that, and um, I think you know, not being able to keep 2D environments uh, straight is, it's something that I understand, but I also feel like this game could do a little bit better at, you know, each sort of area, each main area has a specific tile set and it reuses that tile set for a lot of rooms. So I get that certain areas, certain rooms can look pretty samey and that does not make them ex especially memorable. So no, and the other thing hard that to is too, track. there are certain areas that look distinct and cool and different, and those were generally my favorite. But a lot of the opening areas, a lot of the beginning areas, are all in caves. And while, well, yeah, they use different colors, I would still get those it, like entire areas confused sometimes. Where I'm like, wait, is this the one that's got like bright pinks and stuff? And then I'm like, no, wait, this is kind of the duller one. Like it, it, that was just happening to me constantly. Yeah, I, I definitely understand that. I think also just sort of the method of progression can be a little obtuse where some of the stuff can be pretty well hidden and like you have to sort of see tile sets that are different, but they're not, they could be a little hard to see, especially if you're playing, you know, the Switch or the Vita version where you're looking at a smaller screen in handheld mode, that can be a little tricky. Um, obviously, if you're playing on a big screen, you can see it a little bit better but uh, certain tile sets will just be different and then that can sort of indicate where you're supposed to you know use your drill power up or use like a the hacking gun or whatever but that can be a little uh, a little hard to see a little hard to you know interpret which is breakable and which isn't so uh that could be a little bit um frustrating as well as you know having when that problem then becomes spread across the entire map where you have, you know, access to pretty much everything, it's like, okay, now where, you know, if there's like one little thing where you need to get through, but it's one spot in the giant map, then you're a little lost. And I think that that could be improved upon. And it's a fairly large map too, with no form of fast travel. There's like a, train thing in the middle of it but that's not necessarily clear um <laughs> and sometimes even that can be a hassle to get to so yeah traversal can be an issue as well the other major thing i do want to critique is there's a couple a handful of areas where enemies blended into the background for me uh it didn't happen all the time but occasionally it would and that led to some really frustrating moments um and i really do think it is an issue where certain enemies were just like I couldn't see. <laughs> and that, you know, led to some unnecessary death, which led to even more backtracking. And I do think that that is a little bit of an accessibility issue. Yep, I could definitely see that. Um, this is also an aspect of most, if not all, Metroidvanias is backtracking. And backtracking can be sort of like a, uh, like a divisive opinion for Metroidvanias. I think what really makes a metroidvania have good backtracking is the areas in which you go back to or have to traverse a couple times they have to be dynamic to your moveset where 
as you backtrack through a room, maybe certain spots are accessible now that you have different upgrades, or there's a faster route through it that now that you have an upgrade you can access, or maybe there's enemies in there that are now just easier to deal with with your new arsenal. And there are a couple points in this that do that, but I feel like overall some of the main thoroughfares are still pretty samey as you go through the game. It's only until like you get the last upgrade that then it becomes super easy to traverse. Hmm. Um, so it can make backtracking feel like a chore because it's very similar to the last couple times you did it rather than it changing. Yeah, um, and, and I think and this is the last point I make on this, I promise. Um, I think that for a player like me, I honestly don't mind backtracking, typically. If I had had a waypoint, some sort of hint of where I'm going, it would have made all the difference. Because the issue I have with this game, and the reason why I think for me it fails, is because when I would go down a path trying to find where I was supposed to go for the story to continue it, and I would go down that path and then find a health upgrade, I wasn't excited that I found a health upgrade. I was annoyed that I wasn't in the right path, <laughs> right? And I feel like if I had just had some sort of marker, some sort of waypoint to tell me, then I would have explored on my own because then I would have had that safety net of, I know I'm not wasting my time here. Um, and that's the problem with this game is I feel like it just wasted my time at several points, which is a really mean thing to say, I know, but I do genuinely, I was genuinely pretty frustrated with it. You know, I don't, I, again, like, I had to pull out a guide for this one, and I don't typically like to do that unless it's for very specific things. I don't typically, you know, halfway through the game, pull out a walkthrough to finish the game with. <laughs> and I, I was pretty bummed about that. I do have some nice things to say, though, I promise. Uh, I really liked most of the boss fights. I felt like they were nicely paced. Um, especially for a retro-style game like this, that's definitely always a concern for me as somebody who did grow up with this era of games. I find that they, especially in boss fights, can be pretty brutal and pretty mean, genuinely. And this one, I felt like they were challenging, but not too challenging. Like, I feel like I died a couple times, but then figured it out and was able to complete them. With the exception of, like, two bosses, I thought most of them were pretty good. Yeah, what also helps with that is that every, almost every single boss has a save point right next to the boss door. Yes. So... If it if you die, you're not losing a bunch of backtracking progress because it's literally just one room away. Yeah, totally. And, and yeah, most of them were pretty good. There was one that required you to use specific guns to do damage. I felt like that one was a little annoying. And then a late game boss that was a flying boss that I thought was a little frustrating. But other than that, I, I, I was into them. Yeah, for this playthrough, I played on hard mode. And yeah, they will <laughs> destroy you if you're not prepared. I mean, fair enough. But that's cool that that's a challenge, though. Um, on normal, I felt like they were pretty well balanced. Yeah, I had some uh, trouble with a couple of them on my first playthrough, you know, when I was playing on normal, but as I've gotten better, yeah, uh, re replaying on hard, I'm like, oh yeah, this is why these were so difficult. Yeah. <laughs> finding, uh, I really loved finding new guns. That was really fun. I feel like it gave me that same vibe of why I love like a Ratchet and Clank or whatever. It's like finding a new gun and finding out how it works. And um, that that was super cool. Um, I enjoyed that aspect of it. And by the end, I had like 12 guns or something. And I think there's a lot more. Yeah, there's a lot of guns in this game. Some of them are extremely well hidden. And some of them require like really specific movement to obtain. And some of them are just straight up randomized. But yeah, there's a lot to obtain. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Those were cool. Again, the first half of the game I really enjoyed. I, I think... And it's parts of the second half I, I kind of enjoyed. Um, I will say some of the main upgrades I do find weird. Um, particularly, I think actually a lot of my issues come down to controls. We talk about how it's kind of like Metroid in those comparisons that it kind of draws on itself. I really wish it wasn't so faithful to that. <laughs> I think the ways it controls could be frustrating sometimes for me. It basically has the same or similar to what I remember Super Metroid being. You can correct me if I'm wrong where you can't aim freely, you can basically aim in six directions, where it's like straight up, down, left or right, or no, it's at six directions, I apologize, eight directions, um, or, or diagonals. And I found that to be very limiting throughout my playthrough of the game. It has that same, like, you gotta stop to aim, like Metroid does, which 
I, I'm not a big fan of. I genuinely felt like I was frustrated why I couldn't use the other stick to just freely aim. I feel like that would have helped make the combat a little more dynamic and interesting. The second stick is a weapon selector. Like, you push that in the direction to choose your gun. And I found I was accidentally activating that all the time. <laughs> and was constantly, unintentionally pausing the action. Was that an issue for you, or am I crazy? <laughs> um, I think this... Uh... This was not an issue for me, but I think I've also played all of those, you know, uh, classic Metroid games that have just eight directional aiming uh, to where I wasn't really noticing it too much. Uh, There are some enemies that will just be in the wrong spot and it's like tricky to actually hit them. (laughs) But that's where some of the other weapons come in handy, where they can give you like a different angle to hit them with or a different trajectory of your projectiles to try and hit them with a different range so that can lend some more versatility to your arsenal but i do agree that having like a full 360 aim like samus returns did that would be that would be ideal but a lot harder to implement i think in this game yeah um the other control issue i have is there's like a dash in this game it's kind of later on you get it you, you know, it's 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 a movement tool. Well, I don't know. Would you consider this a spoiler? Should I save this? No, I think it's fine. Uh, okay. The there's this dash that you have to that you can use later on. You get it to where it can move in any direction, and you can do it pretty quickly. Except that in order to execute it, you have to double tap the direction you want to move in, and it Terrible. feels it feels really unnatural. Like, if this was mapped to a separate button, I think this would be just infinitely more fluid. Um, double tapping is really unnatural because you have to, like, stop to then move and double tap it because it's the same stick or D-pad, which makes some of the, like, specific movement that you have to do with this dash uh, really, like, finicky and made me just not there's a reason i haven't 100 percented this game it's because certain things require you to use the dash in succession with a bunch of other things that like just feels really really unnatural to me that i have not attempted it it feels like it is not in consideration of the analog stick you know like this feels like it was made with with a button in mind, not recognizing that most modern players would gravitate to the analog stick. So, like, I was accidentally activating this thing all the time. And it, I find it really frustrating. And then what I did it specifically, specifically, there's only a couple areas where you have to do this, but to get through doors on the ceiling? Ooh. <laughs> those were, uh, those were, like, rage-filled moments. <laughs> yeah, because you have to time, because it registers on the second press, so you have to time jumping and then tapping twice so that you'll actually have enough distance to clear the clear the wall. Yeah, it's it's it could be frustrating, and I just don't think it's super intuitive. I think if we had, because we both played the Switch version, I borrowed yours, thanks for that. I think if we had played this on a system with a D-pad, it might have helped. <laughs> I feel like using the analog stick or the like alternate arrow buttons on the Switch is just not ideal for this. Um, even a D-pad, though, I, I will say, I would rather have it mapped to a, a button or something, something Yeah, because I've played this with a controller with a D-pad, and it doesn't, It's it still feels weird. <laughs> okay, yeah. I'm not a big fan of the grappling hook in this game. That's a specific thing for me, though. <laughs> yeah, the grappling hook also is a little finicky. It was one of those things where I'm like, yes, a grappling hook, love those. And this one, I was like, oh, this is finicky, I don't like using it, but, you know. But to be fair, I also didn't like the grappling hook in Super Metroid, and it functions very similar to that. <laughs> right. Yeah, other than that, I, I, you know, I enjoyed getting most of the upgrades. There's one that I won't spoil, even though it's earlier, that I, I really quite enjoyed. But yeah, is there anything else you want to say? Oh, the music's awesome. Yeah, um, this was something that, like, I get why people were like, oh, there's no way he did the music, too, because it is, like, extremely good and fitting for this world that it seems like... A music professional definitely attempted this but no he's kind of just like just did it he actually said it was the easiest part of the game's development was making the music but i mean it turned out really good i especially love um i'm forgetting the specific track names but i believe it's trace rising is the name of the boss theme it's really really good um also the one with the weird chanting in the background yes, of the, like singing favorite. that one's really good yeah 
Yeah, there's got definitely an otherworldly vibe to the more exploration, you know, like focused areas, uh, which I quite enjoyed. The boss music was very epic when it needed to be. So yeah, great job on that. Um, I will also say I am not a big fan of pixel art. Generally, like it doesn't well be in itself, particularly this 8-bit style pixel art. But I do like the choice here because when we get to larger sprites, larger, more intricate sprites, I feel like it really shines. So I'm actually ended up being quite a big fan of this look, which isn't something that offhandedly, if you just showed it to me, I would have told you. But, you know, this very simple style, and then we get to the big woman's head, you know, it's like, damn, that looks awesome. So I feel like yeah. it helped specific elements shine, even though as a whole, I'm not a huge fan of it. Yeah, I think specifically like the bosses and the Rasalki, the big robots, uh, those really show off that like, you know, detailed pixel art that is allowed to be really big is uh, can be really good. The way that uh, Thomas did this uh, and he showed this, it's in the art book that comes with the multiverse edition. And then it's also uh, talked about in the documentary. Uh, what he did was he just drew all of the enemies and bosses and stuff in pencil on paper and then scanned them and just handmade the pixel art based off of his pencil sketches. Uh, so looking at the original pencil sketches, you can see that they're really, really detailed, <laughs> but obviously that's not going to translate into pixel art. So yeah, when you get into these big things that are allowed to have many, many pixels, you can sort of capture the detail a little bit more. Yeah, and I think just this going from a simplicity of like the simple enemies and even Trace himself and, and the caves, and then you you know you run up to this big, massive, larger than life thing. It, it just really sticks out, and, and I think it was the, the art style's worth it just for that. And, and even there's some environments you know that are outdoors that look awesome and have really cool backgrounds. And, and there's like you know early on you'll find like a big pile of bones that looks gnarly. It's it's really cool. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about before we, we get into it? Um, I think I'm about ready to get into spoilers. My overall feelings of it, three playthroughs in, uh, still haven't changed too much. I think it's a really, it's uh, worth your time if, if you're a Metroid fan, obviously, um, most Metroid fans have probably already played this, but if you're a fan of other Metroidvanias, like, and some of the recent ones like Hollow Knight, I think you'll probably pretty you'll probably dig this one it has that sort of that same open world and that somewhat bleak atmosphere that metroid games strive on so uh yeah definitely give it a shot i think it's you know it's on everything <laughs> of from the last generation uh it probably goes on sale i'm sure so yeah definitely give it a shot yeah i mean i would say you know slightly different to you if you're if you're a person who's a little bit frustrated with uh, backtracking elements and like no direction skip this one but but yeah if you if you can hang with that stuff it'll you'll probably enjoy it yeah or play through as much as you can and then use a guide like there's no shame in that <laughs> right um all right we're going to move on to spoilers so if you'd like to hear some you know, more specific thoughts on narrative and some other items and things like that stay listening if not we'll see you later What was your favorite gun? Oh, my favorite gun. And I don't remember names, so you're going to have to describe this in terms of its effect to me. Yeah, I have them written out here in our notes with their official name and then a description of what they do, because I also could not remember the names. <laughs> um, obviously, the highlight is the lightning gun. And there's a couple lightning-themed guns. This is just called the lightning gun. Uh, it shoots out a beam and then the end of that beam will latch onto an enemy and then it'll just deal continual damage as long as it's connected to him. Yes, that one was definitely nice. Um, I found that pretty late game. I really enjoyed the other kind of lightning gun that I'm trying to find here. It's the one that's like green and shoots all over the screen. Oh, yes, the Varange. Yeah, that was cool. It had a cool effect and I liked the way it forced you to like pay attention to the environment because it wouldn't shoot past platforms. 
So, like, you could cover the screen with it as long as there's nothing obstructing the shot. Um, so that was cool. It felt like, you know, a very powerful weapon, but you still had to think a little bit, which I, I enjoyed. I feel like that, I ended up, I think it was practically the flamethrower, which I only found because I was using a guide, and it's kind of obtuse to get, um, ended up being, that ended up being one of the most useful weapons, I felt like, because I felt like it put on the most damage quickest, so that was nice. I ended up using that for the final boss. <laughs> Especially at close range, uh, I feel like it can be pretty powerful. Um, also on that note, the, the firewall, I think, is a pretty useful early game. I don't think I it's, found that one. I think it's hidden in a wall, so like I don't blame you for not finding it because it's just a wall that you can walk through and it's there. But uh, it shoots a bomb and then the bomb leaves a little uh, lingering spout of fire huh. that then disappears after a little bit. But yeah, it can be useful for hitting an enemy and then stunning them in spot in a spot for a little bit. That one can be pretty helpful. A lot of the guns do end up just kind of being an upgrade of your basic gun. <laughs> they like do. Your your main gun is just your regular, you know, uh, beam weapon, just regular Metroid shooter. Uh, but then you get stuff like uh, the inertial pulse, which is like the base gun, except it goes through enemies. It shoots a little bit slower, but it goes through enemies. Or, um, oh my god, these names are wild. Yeah. <laughs> Um, um, I really enjoyed, while well, you're thinking about that, I really enjoyed the shards gun too, which is kind of like, I guess I would say it's like an SMG kind of thing, um, but it shoots ice shards and it doesn't have any range, but it, it, you know, it covers a, a wider area in front of you and it shoots a bunch of them. That, that was a fun one too. Yeah. The, uh, orbital discharge I found to be like the best, um, upgrade to your main one. That's, you know, just an improvement of your main weapon but this one if it hits a wall it clings to it and then spins on the wall or it'll like uh, traverse the wall oh i didn't find that yeah it can be pretty useful for enemies that are a little out of the way but sticking to a surface that you can shoot the surface then it'll spin around the surface yeah lots, lots of lots of cool weapons in the game and and i did enjoy that aspect again quite a bit can i tell you about the secret world weapons yes uh, did you find any secret worlds? I no, <laughs> I don't okay. think so. If you don't know, then pro if you don't know what they are, then you probably didn't find any. Uh, these are uh, sort of glitched out areas that uh, are hidden in the world, and they're like little sub areas, and then they'll have a power up in them. And there are three weapons that you can only get in them. They're usually hidden in certain walls. And they can be really hard to find. Uh, if you get close to a wall that has an entrance, then uh, the screen will gradually get more like scan lines on it. Uh, so you can kind of tell when you're close. And then once you're in it, you just get full scan lines on your screen. Uh, there are three guns that can only be found in the secret worlds. They are the Heat Seeker, uh, which homes in on enemies. The Scissor Beam, which fires a, a wide beam and then deals damage in between the two beams and then the fat beam which is just a spartan laser but covers most of the screen oh that's awesome but here's the thing about these so the the secret worlds there's five of them but they are their locations are randomized through each playthrough of the game oh i didn't count how many possible locations there are um but it's like it's up there it has to be at least like 60 70 possible locations for these <laughs> and then once you're inside the uh, secret world you get a procedurally generated level that at if you find the item in uh, you can find one of five secret items uh, they're split up into three difficulties so there's two easy ones two medium ones and one hard one and the hard one contains the weapon uh the easy ones can contain like a health fragment or a size upgrade or whatnot so yeah if uh the three secret world weapons are not required for 100 percent completion of this game <laughs> and since there's only one hard secret world you can actually only find one of the secret world weapons per playthrough okay <laughs> See, yeah, if you really enjoy bumping up against secret shit like that, 
Yeah, so this game you, is for you. But if you want a specific one of the three secret uh, world weapons, like maybe you want the Heat Seeker or the Fat Beam, then it's random as to whether this save file actually has that. And then you also have to find the secret world and find the weapon in the secret world. For this playthrough, I didn't actually find the weapon i found a couple of the other secret worlds and got like a health upgrade or whatnot but on my second playthrough i do remember finding the scissor beam uh and it was pretty useful but um these were said to be inspired by stuff like the original super mario brothers minus world and the metroid secret worlds from metroid one where you have to like intentionally glitch the game to find these sort of corrupted uh not designed areas right um and then the fact that they're randomized makes it so that they seem like they're not created by the developer they're just they're just glitches but while still being you know like actually beneficial to the game i mean in all seriousness i think that's awesome um especially you know for your hardcore players who are going to want to play this a hundred times to discover something like that that that's awesome was this something he publicized or did he not say anything about this and players found him do you know? Um, I believe uh, players found them, and then in a Reddit AMA later on, people had asked about it, and he said, yeah, these were inspired by stuff like that. Okay, that's cool then. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I uh, like that a lot. Um, what did you think about the, the drone and then the subsequent upgrade later where you can teleport to the drone? Because that was like my favorite thing about the game. <laughs> Yeah, the drone is interesting because uh, this being sort of a Metroid game, you see these tight gaps and you're like, okay, can I crawl? I mean, I'm not wearing a big suit of armor like Samus. I should be able to crawl. No, you can't crawl. Uh, so That is a little upgrade? video game logic. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, okay, well, come whatever. on. It's a little like in The Last of Us where you can't go down a hallway because there's a bunch of chairs piled up. And you're like, okay. <laughs> video <laughs> you can games. Them, but, yeah, okay, video whatever. games, I know. <laughs> I mean, it's pixel art and I'm shooting a gun that can fire you know, whatever, so. I know, it's silly. It's just, you know, it's fine. Um, so I'm like, okay, maybe there's an upgrade that lets me, like, you know, squeeze into these tight gaps or whatever. Uh, it's different because you actually get a remote drone that can fit through those gaps, but initially you can't actually be there. Like, you can control the drone freely, and it has its own little weapon and drill, uh, but you can only then destroy it and return it back to where Trace is. You can also pick up items. Yeah, you can still pick up uh, collectibles and whatnot. Uh, it's only till later in the game where you get the drone teleport that this becomes extremely powerful. And um, super like It's kind of situational, but then once you get the drone teleport, it's crazy powerful where you can then teleport to the location of your drone. So if you squeeze through a tight gap and then there's a bigger area you want to explore and maybe your drone can't jump high enough, then you teleport to it and you can fully explore it uh it can also be used really creatively where you can shoot the drone forward uh, and you could do this anyway but then teleport to it mid-air and then use some of your other tools like the grappling hook or um the dash or whatever to then get more height or distance um and it's stuff like that that's really cool but with the sort of finicky dash it becomes really frustrating if you're trying to get like a specific distance uh, which is needed for some items yeah but even on my casual playthrough it was the what ability that i was like oh, okay this is creative and neat and i really like this idea of like okay i bet i don't see where i can go but i think there's a ledge up there so if i shoot my drone and we should say there's another upgrade too where you get like a launcher so you can really shoot your drone far um, but if I shoot my drone up into the left, oh wait, there's yeah, there is a lip up there. I can get up there. That's cool, and, and I and I did find that that helped open up the level design a bit for me, and, and I really ended up enjoying that ability. It's also great because the drone has a separate health bar that regenerates. So if you want to just scope out an area and maybe take care of a couple enemies, then you can do that and then not risk taking a bunch of damage to Trace because the drone's health is going to regenerate once it comes back. Oh, which I did in those last couple areas. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I do not want to backtrack anymore. We're just, uh, we're just using the drone. <laughs> All right, drone, kill these enemies for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What did you think about the, not the field disruptor, the address disruptor? 
the sort of hacking glitching gun. I thought it was cool visually. It didn't really, you know, it wasn't like something that I felt like was revolutionary in terms of gameplay. It's basically just an unlocking tool. But visually, I thought it looked neat. You know, they draw to get use those it on bombs. Every single enemy you found. Um, the only times I used it was when the enemies would become platforms. There was like areas where I'm like, oh, I guess I could glitch these guys out and stand on them. That was the only thing I figured out. Why does different things happen? Yeah, every every enemy has a different uh, a bit different effect when they become glitched, and some of them are resistant to it until you upgrade it. So certain ones are hmm. you can't use the original address disruptor, but you get a more powerful one, and then some are only hacked by the address bomb, which you get late in the game. Uh, so certain enemies, all of them are beneficial in one way or the other. So for stuff like the little pods that shoot out a bunch of like puff projectiles, if you hack those, then instead of shooting puff projectiles, they shoot out health. What? Um, which is pretty handy. Uh, some of them, they just move slower or they'll be stuck in place or they'll uh, just have a different movement thing or they'll do less damage. Like it's kind of experimenting and figuring out which ones that, you want to, you know, spend time hacking them because it'll be beneficial or if you just want to deal with them quicker. Um, so which is safer, which is more interesting to you. Um, some of my favorites include there's one enemy in the area that will just like move up and down, but there's a bunch of them in the room. And if you hack one of them, then it actually hacks all of them so that they all share the same health. And if you kill one, it kills all of them in the room. Huh. I didn't realize this. I feel like they used this on the first couple of enemies and didn't really do too much, so I never experimented with it, really. Like, I discovered, like, on the blooper-like enemies that you could stand on them, but I was like, okay, that must be the same for every enemy. And then, like, the gold-yellow guys that fly around and shoot at you, um, in some of the final areas. I know the bomb will hurt them over time, and so I used that a bunch, but I, I never thought that they would have different effects, really. Huh. Yeah, they're, um... It's That's cool. really interesting, because some of them... Like, there's a couple enemies that are just super annoying to deal with, but once you hack them, they'll, you know, move slower, and then they're easier to deal with, or they'll give you helpful items, like, um kind of late in the game one of the last areas there's these like spinning razor blade dudes with tails if you hack them which you can easily do with the address bomb because it hacks everything instantly uh their tails they move slower and their tails then become address bomb pickups so you can refill your supply huh yeah it's uh it's really interesting there's some that hacking an enemy is required to get an item like uh, in one of the earlier areas, there's these, like, floating shells that sort of bounce around. If you hack them, then when they bounce around, they can actually break blocks that you can't. So you can use that to find an alternate path or maybe a path to an item. Uh, yeah, that's something that I really enjoy about this game is kind of figuring out which enemies do what when you hack them. And then, you know, as you upgrade your hacking thing to where it takes less time or do does it instantly, it becomes pretty uh pretty useful for some enemies that's cool what did you think of the narrative um this narrative is kind of a mess <laughs> um it is i i will say i enjoyed the main thrust of it as a casual player who wasn't really looking too much into the lore like i stopped reading the lore pages because they were just kind of whatever to me yeah they're vague <laughs> Uh, as I said, so I just gave up on that. It just as, you know, the story, experiencing the story it gave you, I enjoyed it up until the end. I thought the ending felt like that, like, oh, it was all a dream kind of thing, even though in your pages it doesn't seem like it actually was. And I'm like, okay, I don't, I don't vibe with this at all. But until that, I was enjoying it just fine. I, I liked that the, the robot lady, whatever her name is, um, Elsa Nova. Elsa Nova wasn't necessarily the villain because when we first started, I was like, okay, that's definitely the villain. You know, it, it, in some way she can be, depending on how you look at it, uh, which I, I enjoyed that aspect of it. Um, but yeah, other than that, it was it was fairly simple and straightforward. Uh, but again, I was do, I was handling it very casually. <laughs> yeah, I think it's one of those that 
over the course of the main narrative sort of gives you some questions to where you can like stop and question the narrative but if you don't want to then you know the basic narrative of just you know stop athetos like that's a fine enough video game like objective to get you through it is and i do feel like it's predictable like i felt like pretty early on i was like okay he's a clone right (laughs) like that's what's happening here right like i'm a clone (laughs) that's the explanation yep i was on i was on the money with that so you know it's not the most intricate thing in the world yeah the basic narrative really isn't so do you want to hear the full story then (laughs) yeah hit me with it i was skimming your notes earlier and was like oh there is more here it's just oh yeah this is like a full page that i've written here so um i won't go through every detail because it can be a little intense um yeah we went through the main plot basically where uh trace is tasked with stopping athetos uh elsa nova and the other rasalki can't do it because the there's a thing called the breach that's like really close to the surface of the planet and it's basically like a space between worlds and like the the robots basically just can't enter it uh, so they can't go above the surface, but Trace can because he can, I don't know, do something. So his goal is to, you know, stop Athetos and disrupt the breach attractor so that Elsa Nova can destroy it and then hopefully send Trace home. Uh, what's actually happening, uh, and then we discussed that Trace is a clone of Athetos and Trace then be- begins to question whether it's even worth going home if he's the clone of a mass murderer, someone who, you know, wiped out all the people on this planet. Like, it's it becomes more of like a question and then the ending shows trace back at home but then he's obsessed with getting back to sudra the planet that you're on and then eventually he it it like ends there with him just trying to find a way back it feels a lot like um like alice of wonderland uh, the, or not alice of wonderland wizard of oz in the sequel to that with dorothy in the <laughs> mental hospital where, yeah, a little like, bit. Like, 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 just playing this casually, I find it frustrating because it's it feels like it's one of those it was all a dream things. <laughs> I'm like, okay, yeah, but not a huge in a way, <laughs> yeah, but once you dive into it, it's not like <laughs> yeah, which I understand. Is like, weird, weird. I don't love that. <laughs> yeah, I understand that you're like, oh, I don't like it where it's all a dream, but then it's not in some ways. <laughs> in some ways, it is a dream, but in others, it's not. <laughs> um so what actually happened was the lab exploded at the beginning uh trace and his assistant dr hammond uh were working in the lab the lab exploded hammond was unharmed but trace was left uh crippled and blinded so since that he's um you know just out of commission for most of it he begins thinking about his uh physics theories and then eventually gets back to work with dr hammond and they finish their research and trace publishes a series of papers called the axioms that essentially he claims will rewrite the laws of physics and let them explore you know whatever but because of this trace gets uh excommunicated from the physics and the scientific community uh and they give him the nickname of athetos and because of this uh he then you know, continues his research and learns how to traverse the breach, which is this barrier between worlds. Uh, so Trace and Dr. Hammond go through the breach and end up in Sudra, the planet that you play the game in. Uh, Hammond puts Trace into one of the rebirth changers, which, chambers, which are the egg save points that you use throughout the game. And this completely heals Trace's injuries, uh, including, but it also leaves an imprint in the machine of Trace's uh dna and whatnot uh in one of the early rooms i think after you return to the starting area and then go backward uh you can see a rusted real wheelchair in one of those rooms oh i missed that hmm. um that's from when trace and hammond came through the first time and trace was healed of his injuries let's see and then there's a bunch of backstory for sudra and how they uh had a bunch of technology like the Rasalki, but then forgot their history after like a big war and now they either fear or 
have religions centered around their past technology. Sutra was once a planet that was like a gateway to other planets, uh, and they were tasked with regulating travel. But now, since they've forgotten all of that, they just forbid any travel. <laughs> the backgrounds in some of those open areas where you see these like spiky orbs hanging from what appears to be like a ceiling. Right. Um, I think it was said in one of uh, Thomas Hap's interviews that those are supposed to be other worlds that are like hanging from some sort of celestial ceiling. And then Sutra's like the gateway to those worlds. That's cool. So, but since the Sudrans prevent any travel, uh, Trace can't, you know, travel to other planets from Sudra, but they do discover that there's another world beyond Sudra that has a bunch of really advanced technology um, that Trace believes could, you know, end all strife on Earth, you know, one of those things. Mm -hmm. But uh, since the Sudrans won't let them leave, um, Trace um, then becomes sort of corrupted and decides to wage war against the Sudrans. Uh, Hammond is gone by that point, by the way. I think she's back on Earth. <laughs> Does it ever get into how he got there? Um, like, how he got that powerful? No. Uh, well, kind of. Um, so, since the Sudrans don't really use their own technology, he was able to, like, get it working again and sort of adapt it. Uh, to his needs uh, some of those that technology being the Rasalki who are still you know functioning but not really being used or doing anything and they're also buried underground so he ends up using the the rebirth chambers the same thing that healed him to create a bunch of um, altered clones of himself that then turn out to be the bosses that you fight in the game those are all altered clones of Athetos mm-hmm um, one of the bosses you actually fight, which isn't even really a boss, you drop in and there's just some like flesh in some of those pods. Yes, those that was a just cool like, moment. Yeah, those are just incomplete clones. <laughs> yeah. So he made a bunch of warped clones of himself to form an army. He also convinced one of the Rasalki, which I am not going to be able to pronounce this, but it's Kathrashaka. I, I applaud your... Katrahaska <laughs> is how it's probably pronounced um, convinces her to join him and then for the final nail in the coffin he creates the pathogen that wipes out pretty much everyone on the planet okay um, the Rasalki though the remaining three are able to uh, fight back because they're giant war machines <laughs> and they manage to destroy his mobile pathogen project protector and Kathrashashka so it forces him to retreat to his base to avoid the pathogen uh, but he also destroyed the repair drones and just leaves the Rasalki to rot underground and that's kind of where the world is left before you start the game right so that still doesn't explain for me is this real for sure um so the plan that starts off the game is Ophelia uses the data that was left behind in the rebirth pod to create a new clone of Trace that is a clone of when he first arrived. And that clone is who you play as, so he's a lot more sympathetic uh, rather than the warped Athetos that is ruling Sudra. Th then you play through the game and as the story goes. But uh, at the end of the game, once Athetos is killed... Um, Elsa Nova puts Trace to sleep or like just subdues him and uh, this is where it gets a little weird because there is an alternate scene if you get a high percentage in the game <laughs> uh, which I don't blame you for not seeing because getting a high percentage is, can be annoying <laughs> uh, and it shows at the bottom of the credits it shows Trace passed out at the base of what seems to be like a Rasalki, just big metal tubes. And then you see the scene of him back on Earth and then wanting to get back to Sudra. So it's 
to mm. be implied that him back on earth where he seemingly goes back in time to yeah. right after the explosion that part isn't actually happening um that's a fabrication by ophelia or veruska one of them uh in trace's mind and then the bonus scene that happens when you get a high percentage is athetos shows up at trace's lab right as he's done with his research and shoots trace <laughs> so that's meant to be like trace's brain giving him the kick and waking him up to rather than him being asleep still on sudra huh i really don't so, think that should be locked behind a percentage <laughs> it feels really I feel like weird that last bit explains a lot and really helps to make the story not feel as cheesy as it did to me yeah and that's something that i had never seen before until i was researching this episode i'm like oh okay actually yeah that's one of those things that maybe should have been golden path for players i feel like because i feel like when you get a you know an alternate ending it should feel like a tease for the next thing or just a cute scene like it shouldn't be story it shouldn't be required <laughs> to understand the narrative hmm i don't like that yeah yeah because the ending at without that seems very much like oh it was an all a dream like he didn't actually go to sudra and now he wants to get back there but it's not going to be real and i definitely see what you mean there but yeah no he did go and now he wants to get back but that him getting back is not real yeah that's hmm okay and there's a lot of other ways to interpret this there's a lot of like really weird backstory and lore and some of the lore tablets you get are not translated like they're still in an alien language so you find a document that gives you a cheat code that then translate the, the documents for you and there's like a whole bunch of nonsense that you have to go through to like unravel everything obviously i did not do all of it here so you know if that interests you maybe seek those out in game or look at the wiki and kind of figure it out but uh, that's kind of what i pieced together <laughs> All right, well, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, I think, is this the first Metroidvania we've done? I think it is. Uh, Probably, honestly. Yeah, so we don't have any other episodes I can recommend. I guess technically, kind of, Luigi's Mansion 2 and 3, maybe? <laughs> maybe? Uh, maybe those count as Metroidvania. Luigi's Mansion 1 is probably more structured like a Metroidvania than the 2 and 3. Uh, but you don't gotta listen to that one. <laughs> yeah, don't listen to that one. <laughs> um, yeah. Thank you for listening. We are doing Maxive Words 2 next, though, so keep your eyes out for that on the feed in a couple weeks. You know, if you want to look back at what we did, we just did a sort of different style review for us on the, the Final Fantasy VII DLC for Episode Youthy, and then we did a Spire of the Dragon marathon, uh, talking about the first five releases in that series, console releases anyway. So yeah, check back the feed. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you want to keep up with us, you can follow the show on Twitter at SaveStationPod. Thank you to Connor for running that account. Uh, Connor, where can the people find you? Uh, you can find me at ConiferSSR. Post random stuff about the games I'm playing. Some some Axiom Verge. Nice. Uh, where can they find you, Dustin? You can find me at DustinHDragon on Twitter. And uh, yeah, once again, thanks for listening. You know, Feel free to tweet at me why you think i'm wrong about axiom verge <laughs> and yeah I've, i'm excited to give the sequel a shot to be fair I, I you know this is one that i'm like okay i can see where where maybe things could be changed and i could i could enjoy it it's what i could see going both ways you know i could see them i could see them not changing very much because people like it or i could see them changing some things that make me enjoy it i don't know i'm, I'm curious yeah i've actually started too and i'm not gonna tell you what it is but it's something okay i'm excited to check it out so yeah Keep your eye out for that episode, and thank you for listening, and please remember to always be good to each other. Bye. <laughs>